Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to Honey Badger Radio. My name is Brian. This is the Fireside Chat. Yes, I know it's a little bit of an unusual time to have the show, but sometimes we just have to, like, you know, uh, alter our schedule for our guests. So today I have um, a very special guest. I've been watching his YouTube channels for a while. Uh, his name, well, we're just going to call him RJ. And he has a YouTube channel called The Fourth Age. And uh, I, I found his videos um, when we were sort of well into Comicsgate. So if this is a this is not going to be a Comicsgate discussion, but the uh, content came out. Uh, at least I, I was introduced to it in the wake of Comicsgate. So uh, hello, RJ. H how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I'm doing well. And um, I want to start by asking, what got you interested in starting a YouTube channel? Why did you decide you wanted to to make videos? I really don't know the answer to that question, quite honestly. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about heroes. That's what my channel is mainly about. I want to talk about heroes. And I spent a lot of time in my study trying to understand what virtue is and what heroism is and what honor is. Uh, these ancient ideas that I studied in university. And I really felt that that was lacking in the discussion that people were having. And I guess that was really the prompt that I had to start discussing these things. Why do you have a fascination with heroes then? Honestly, that's a, a long story, but um, I grew up reading comics and I grew up playing games and I got this fascination with uh, virtue. And about, well, let's say 30 years ago now, I decided to find out what virtue was. As Marcus Aurelius would say, what is the thing within itself? Not examples of it, but what it was. Mm -hmm. And that journey actually took me more than 20 years to find out exactly what it was. And during that time, I learned about a lot of other different things like heroism, like honor, like righteousness and the definition, the fundamental ancient definitions for these things. And honestly, when I came back to it about 20 years later, and I said to myself, well, I've looked through all this stuff, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I actually went back to the original things that I had looked at. And I said to myself, there's the definition right there. And I learned there and then that what I had to do, what I've been doing for the last 20 years was really trying to get rid of all this progressive nonsense that had been piled up in my head for so long. And it took that long for me to get rid of that information in order for me to see what was staring me in the face from the first. So you actually had a progressive mindset and then sort of found this and managed to like, it sort of pulled you out of that. Well, yes and no. I've always been very conservative and uh, grew up in a very conservative household, but I did go to university, spent a lot of time there, um, I think almost 12 years. And mm -hmm. I originally intended to become a professor, but uh, after when I was doing my graduate work, I figured out that I really didn't want to be among these people. But really, <laughs> I don't think it was something that was taught very specifically and that I believe very specifically. It was more the underlying layer of what is there for almost everything that you see out there in the world today and has been so for quite some time. Mm. You know, they, they, I, I've seen uh, studies that, that say, and I've seen people discuss this, that 
uh, people who tend to be more uh, right wing or conservative when they go to university, um, they they don't they they um, they actually tend to uh, be better better educated um, and have a better understanding of the other side than people who are born and raised more left wing and go to university because universities have this uh, bias of things like eighty five percent of uh, universities are hard left and so if you are already on the left you go to university then it reaffirms that which you already know and believe to be true and if you're not then you get exposed to these ideas and it doesn't always change people's minds they don't get converted but they have a better understanding of the other side and uh, actually become more well-rounded as a result Yes, well, I had the advantage of going to a very good university originally where the professors really wanted you to see both sides of it. And when I took things like political theory, we not only learned about critical thinking, but we learned about critical theory as well. So critical theory would be your your leftist, your progressive kind of mindset. Really, it uh, developed from socialist, communist kind of ideologies. But I also learned about critical theory. I learned about logic and I learned about a lot of things that really countered all of this progressive ideology. But that was in my undergraduate. When I got to grad school, when I got to bigger schools where they were training you to be a professor, that kind of fell to the wayside. I didn't see that there. People didn't want to search for truth. They didn't want to look for knowledge. They simply wanted you to parrot what they had done and what had come before. Oh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So you're saying when you go to grad school, if you want to become a professor or go into education, then all of the the ways in which uh, the and there aren't many because uh, you have to be at a pretty good school to find this. But the ways in which there you are being taught um, not what to think, but how to think uh, that kind of goes by the wayside. And it just becomes a, a, a little bit more uh, like dogmatic in terms of its, uh, you know, reinforcing of its own belief system. Is that right? Yes, but it's very fundamental in the way that they're teaching and not so much in what they are teaching, certainly in what they're teaching to some degree. But I would say it's more the fact that the way that the classes were structured, because I went to a very small university when I did my undergrad, my, both of my undergrads, actually. And um, I had classes where you argued with a professor and you had conversations and you had very deep political and philosophical conversations. But when I got to grad school and I got to these larger classes, when they were still seminar classes and you were still allowed to speak up, no one but me spoke up. No one knew how to actually argue. No one knew how to made a, make a counterpoint. All of these other students from different universities I found were just silent sheep. And that's what they thought you should be in trying to be a professor. And it really shocked me that Really, a lot of the classes, it ended up with me and the professor just having an argument and everybody else would just be sitting there. But it was a seminar class, so we were supposed to have an argument. So, I mean, these fundamental things where people certainly don't speak up, it's just that kind of mindset, not entirely what you're being taught, but certainly how you are being taught. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's really interesting. I wonder if that uh, doesn't have anything to do with like, um, I, I think that s students that uh, go into university that are not taught um, the, the, you know, like how to uh, think about big questions, how to think about uh, these kinds of uh, very deep philosophical um, discussions. 
I wonder if they're not instead just simply taught what to think, uh, memorize things, which is a lot, at least a big problem with public schools here um, in, in the States. And as a result of that, when they go into university, they, they kind of become, uh, they're conditioned to be very agreeable. And so they, they realize that, or they believe that the, the best way to pass your classes is to not challenge the teacher and not, um, you know, make a fuss and instead accept what they're telling you as gospel and memorize it and pass the test and get an A and then go into the workforce. And because um, I, I used to start arguments with my professors as well, and I was the only person who did that in my classes. And I remember I was accused by a professor, although he didn't use it against my grade because he couldn't um, of of hating women because I challenged uh, the dogma of feminism in college. And I remember running into him in the hall and he said, oh, you're the kid that hates women. And I said, no, I don't hate women. That's ridiculous. Um, but I, I think it's because he wasn't accustomed to people actually speaking out. And because most of the time students, they didn't want to fail. They were afraid of, of not, you know, uh, not being approved by their professor. So they stayed silent. Remember, remember what they were told and then made the, uh, you know, just pass their classes. Well, I would agree with that to some extent. I think, well... Something that happened to me when I was, uh, I guess it was during my my honors for one of my undergrad, I was just me and the professor because there was no one else there. <laughs> and he told me that he really liked to teach me because whenever he said something, it made an impact. And I had a worldview that could incorporate all of these ideas that were being thrown at me into my worldview and I could reject them or I could accept them. But he said that other students, they simply just didn't have that. They didn't have a backdrop of knowledge. They didn't have any fixed reference points. And he said it was like shooting bullets into space when he talked because he never knew if he was actually hitting anything. And mm -hmm. I think that's the main problem with these people that grow up without any fixed idea of what the world is or any kind of fixed notion of knowledge or any background like that at all. They simply don't have a background in order to orient themselves, in order to understand these ideas. They're just a buoy on the ocean and nothing makes any sense in that way. And that's really what progressivism has tried to do to unmoor even thought and speech from its original setting. And so I don't know what you'd say, um, readjust the language to their to fit their narrative. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, so let me uh, ask you a question. Your, your channel name is The Fourth Age. What is the meaning behind the name of your channel? Well, the meaning is, well, I am talking mainly about comic books, but I also talk about movies and shows at times. But what I concentrate on is heroes. And in Greek mythology, the fourth age is the age of heroes. And I think that that's what we need to get back to. We need to get back to an heroic ideal um, where people are self-sacrificial. And that's what I wanted to talk about, about heroes. So I call it the fourth age because that is the age of heroes. Ah, I see. And okay, that no, that's, that's really cool. That's really interesting. Because when I heard it, um, I thought of uh the in comics 
specifically, we used to have ages. Uh, people would, uh, you know, address them as ages. So there was the golden age, which was uh, after the pulp age. And we're talking World War II and, you know, the, the beginnings of the, the superhero genre. And then in after that, there was the Silver Age, which was in the wake of um, uh, the World War II, like after the, mon- the giant monsters and the, the you know, the, the hydrogen bomb scare and all that. And you had the Silver Age is basically the Marvel Age when they rose up. And then you have the Bronze Age when... Uh, which is uh, characterized by the death of Gwen Stacy um, in Spider-Man. It's when things got a little bit darker. And then you have the Iron Age, which is the 90s with all the pouches and big guns. And then uh, I remember in the early 2000s, people were calling it the Platinum Age. Um, And I thought it was the fourth age. I was counting it down, but I I was way off. But I I want to describe the ages for people that were watching, in case you don't know. The comics have a series of ages uh, that uh, they're not. I don't know that they're official, but a lot of people who've been reading for a long time uh, typically refer to them in that way. Although across most of that, the the uh, stories of of real heroism and understanding of heroism uh, did exist, which is why I don't I don't consider the this age that we're currently in to be the platinum age. It's, it's something else. I can't even uh, describe it. So. But um, I thought that that was a uh, uh, interesting way to uh, to name your channel. Um, so what kind of uh, I know that you talk a lot about heroes in your videos and what it means to be a hero. Do you think that audiences that read comics uh, or watch shows or consume story based media in any form? Do you think that they are um, that there's a possibility that they're keenly aware that there's something amiss in these stories, that things are not coming out as uh, that they, there's something wrong with the way they're being told? Because there is this kind of uh, subversion of these uh, heroic archetypes and these stories. Oh, quite definitely. I get that comment all the time on my videos, people saying that. I never really understood what it was that was scratching at the back of my mind. I knew I didn't like this. I just couldn't understand or put it into words why I didn't like it. People make that comment all the time. They say Mm -hmm. that you're right. You know, this isn't a hero. What I'm looking at here isn't a hero. And that's why I don't like it. And certainly it's been going on for quite some time now. For Personally, for myself, you know, a lot of things fell away for me because of how modern media was portraying just your normal people besides the heroes that were on the screen. And I think that for me, anyways, um, I really gave up on mainstream comics. Well, we'll say street mainstream comics that were being put out around the late nineties. And, you know, I did buy comics after that collections and older comics, but um, I saw this going on as early as the mid nineties in comics. And it just progressed into other things like television, movies, everything else that I really went to for a story, it just started to be taken over by this. And I could see the progression because I started to give up on these things one by one by one. Mm-hmm. And I would go to other venues, really, um, things like foreign movies and stuff like that, that doesn't doesn't have this progressive ideology in its background. That's where I went for my stories after that. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I was just going to ask you if you'd observe this change, this what's going on in comics now. I also stopped in the 90s. Um, 
And I there was the, it was like there was this strange a fascination or borderline obsession with anti-heroes with uh stories that weren't very well written but were well illustrated um with this it was it was just it didn't feel uh and I hate to make a feeling argument but there was something wrong with it. It was it was something missing, and that was happening in the mid to late nineties. There was this weird obsession with antiheroes, with uh, here like uh, subversion of of existing archetypes. You mentioned, and again, this isn't a comicscape discussion, but I'm gonna use comics as a as a means to discuss um, these like bigger ideas. I remember in one of your videos you were looking at um, a paragon of virtue and used Superman as an example, and you were explaining why Superman is a hero, why he resonates with uh, so many people, and I mean like people anywhere. You can go in the middle of Australia, the Australian outback, find an Aborigine and ask them if they know who Superman is, and they can tell you. Um, and um, the I just had this thought that in the mid to late 90s, there were these kind of anti-Superman characters, uh, even the Dark Knight Returns, which is a, a, a comic that is uh, widely revered as an incredible piece of work by Frank Miller, features a Superman that represents uh, kind of like this. Um, he's he's kind of a uh, fascist figure. And I saw that going on even back then. He's like the representative of the Reagan era and all these things that Frank Miller doesn't like. And so there is a and then there's Supreme. That was a thing in the 90s that was like this super violent Superman character. So there was this desire to subvert and uh, criticize and dismantle uh, heroic archetypes uh, even going back as as far as then, would you would is would you uh, say that that's a fair assessment? Yes, indeed, it is a fair assessment. I just had a discussion with someone on that video. Uh, I was talking about those books in particular and about the Dark Knight and how this for him was the beginning of the end for Batman and for Superman. And I pointed out, and he agreed with me that really at that point they weren't trying to drag down the heroes so much individually i think it's more the uh i don't know what to call it the friendship between these two heroes that's the original point where they tried to destroy the idea of hero i think certainly the idea of friendship is right there in the middle of heroic ideals and uh, should be something that is put on a pedestal and lauded you know true friendship and that was what was destroyed in my mind in that book. And although, you know, you had Superman and Batman both becoming much darker, mm -hmm. I really think that the destruction of the friendship between the two of them was something that needed to be done first. And then they moved on to the destruction of the other heroic ideals, because at that time it was just an Elseworld story. It didn't really impact the main continuity right. of comics. So when they started to, that's when they started to chip away I think at these two heroes and the fundamental basis of them being heroes and being friends. But yes, in, indeed, I agree with you that that was certainly a time, not just for these heroes, but a lot of others where this began. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent that you mentioned. And I was just going to say this too, that uh, the thing is the dark Knight returns. If people 
that there are people that say, well, I like that book or whatever. I, I don't, I'm not uh, trying to attack or criticize that book specifically. I think that it is an elsewhere. It was an elseworld story. It was just, I think Frank Miller may have just been exploring this idea and he may not have, and I couldn't tell you for sure, but maybe he didn't want that to ever actually become a canon thing, but he was just ex- making um, a, a one shot story, kind of like what Marvel used to do with what if comics, which go back to the seventies and eighties Um where you could just experiment with things that normally you wouldn't be allowed to do uh, because, you know, they want to maintain the, the canon universe to be a certain way. Um, and then there would be no consequences. It was like a, you could just tell the story one time and then, hey, whatever. And just just like Alan Moore's Watchmen, um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the book. I understand why people like it. I don't dislike it. I think it's okay. I, it, you know, it's an interesting um, way to tell that kind of story. And I don't mind stories that, you know, do these kind of uh, subversions of, of heroic archetypes and heroic stories. However, the unforeseeable at the time uh, consequence of books like The Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns was that it became a mainstream idea to do these subversions over and over by far less talented and far less subtle people. And then it started to sort of degenerate away from, you know, what was uh, what people expect as the mainstream and all these subversions become the mainstream. And so the original ideas of superheroes become the subversion. There's sort of like a flipping of what people's expectations are. Uh, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes sense. And I'm always talking about on my channel that, you know, the idea the traditional Western idea of a hero, it goes back, I would say from my studies, for more than 3,000 years in Western civilization. And it's that a hero is a paragon of virtue. And if you take that out of the equation, you're not looking at a hero. And that's what a lot of these comics did. They they took that out of the equation. You're not looking at someone who's virtuous. You're not looking at someone who's fighting like, a, like Superman is supposed to for truth, justice, and the American way. You're looking at something else. And when you're looking at something else and you're presenting that to the audience, you're presenting them something that should be um, different from the norm, something that's not going to be used if you're going to be telling heroic stories. But you are correct. That became the norm, and that became what everybody wanted to do, and I think was really the the beginning of the end for your heroic ideal in your comic. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know... It's it, the fact that you're mentioning how old this this uh, idea of the hero is uh, brings me to something else because there are people who would uh, who need to understand this about not just comics but uh, a lot of our uh, narrative based media because this this um, kind of progressive ideology has crept into comics, video games, literary fiction, film, television, uh, even like interactive entertainment that's not video games like uh, tabletop gaming, like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. Um, And the reason is because I think that they recognize how important stories are to human beings because we have been telling stories most of which started i probably um they may even be older than language uh in my and maybe i'm i'm not a um you know anthropologist i don't know for sure but maybe you can uh you know 
shed some light on that. So stories are important because they're very old. And I think that um, uh, progressives want to kind of reinvent storytelling itself. Um, so this is this is far beyond comics. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think the reason why progressives really have latched on to storytelling is because, well, I always go back to Aristotle and he talks about the fact that you have a story and it is trying to convince you of something. It is an argument, but it's a rhetorical argument. And of all the types of argumentation, it is the one that is most easily corrupted because mm -hmm. you can put in arguments which are strictly feeling arguments, not, not something that is based on reason or logic in any way. And this is why I think they're using it as a vehicle and have latched onto it so much is because they're trying to teach their ideology. And if they used anything that was even comparable to reason or logic, it would fall apart and everyone would realize that it's ridiculous. So they need to put it into your life in a way that doesn't have anything to do with reason and logic. It has simply to do with feelings. And when you listen to a lot of these people that I cover on my channel and they talk about making a comic, it's always based upon feeling. It's always based upon presenting this idea according to feeling. Now, I believe that feelings certainly have a place in every story and even sometimes in arguments when you have reference to them, but they're not to be the basis of your argument. But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make these things the basis of their argument so that people simply only understand an argument based upon feelings. That's it. And mm -hmm. so they will never be able to reference anything either logical or rational. And stories as the most corruptible form of argumentation is what has allowed them to do this over generations, I think. Yes, uh, but stories, in order for them to really work, there has to be a truth in them. And when I say that, I don't mean uh, facts, because a story can be completely fictional while revealing a kind of truth. I think those are the ones that uh, typically resonate with people the most. Uh, you know, like, for example, the story of Beowulf um, is, I think it's the oldest uh, written Western piece of fiction that we have. And it, it is uh, ultimately uh, a story of a hero, but it's also the man versus nature story. But nothing in the poem could be real, and it likely isn't. But the point is, is that what it's communicating is real. Does that make sense? Yes, well, I would agree. I think that when a story is being told again, I always go back to Aristotle on my channel because he has had such an influence on storytelling because he set out manuals almost for storytelling and things like his poetics. But he talks about the fact that a story is an imitation of reality and it needs to be an imitation of reality. Your audience needs to recognize within that imitation that it is a true representation of reality. Mm -hmm. And the thing that a lot of these heroic stories allow is for people to see that true representation of reality, which is in their own human nature. And so they have some reference within themselves that they can see and that they can explore. And certainly things like Beowulf and older myths and legends allow people to do this. It is again, not strictly a rational argument, but it points to something that is truly within every human being, a fixed nature, I would say, and it allows everyone to have that reference point. And if they wish to proceed from that point onward rationally and logically and explore those ideas, they can do so. Mm. Yes, uh, yes, I agree.
That's a that's a good point. And again, if we know that it's that we we can tell when something is real and when something feels um there is a bit like you said there's like that 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 scratch at the back of your mind that that there's what you're being fed sounds uh you may not jump to the conclusion that it's propaganda but you get the sense that there's something untrue happening uh especially when it's you know stories that we resonate with us the most tend to talk about the human condition they talk about uh larger truths that that are actually reducing it down to things like identity politics or even just politics in general can actually be a reduction of the idea that's being communicated in a story Oh, certainly. And I've covered this a number of times on my channel. Uh, you have someone like Sana Amanat, who is basically the person in control of Marvel Comics right now. And she has stated straight out that these heroes, they're basically ideas in a mask. Mm -hmm. They're not actual people. They're not supposed to be looked at as characters. They simply slip them in there as characters, but they're not portrayals of actual human beings like stories should present. They are simply ideas in a mask. That is to say that they, as a character, that is the mask of this idea that is being presented to you. And she had even said that these heroes are supposed to push, in her words, positive ideas. And so the whole progressive mindset, certainly at Marvel, is the fact that these heroes are not actual human beings. They shouldn't even be representations of human beings. They are representations of ideas to push ideas into your mind. And she even talks about this straight out when she talks about the psychological impact of it and how this should be the new mythology for your current people who are growing up. And there's no bones about it. They, they don't make any bones about it anymore. They straight out say this, that they're trying to push ideas into your mind rather than represent any kind of reality, rather than give you a hero or even a character that you can identify with as a human being. Yes, it's uh, actually it's good that you you brought up Sana Amanat because I did want to talk about uh, her work with Marvel and and the kinds of ideas she puts out there. So essentially, she's saying that um, the, her idea of a hero is not a person like Peter Parker is written as a person. That's actually what makes him what made him so successful and the most uh, it, one of, if not the most relatable mainstream superhero character uh, in history. But they are actually talking points. They are arguments in a mask. They are ideas. And they're trying to put them out there based on their beliefs. And, and the ironic thing is, is that Sana Amanat herself, in case you guys don't know, um, she is the creator. I think she's the one that uh, created the new uh, Ms. Marvel. Not, not the original Ms. Marvel that is now Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, but Kamala Khan, the Muslim girl uh, Ms. Marvel that lives in New Jersey, and she based that character on herself and claimed that Sa uh, that uh, uh, Sana Amina claimed that um, Ms. Marvel slash Kamala Khan uh, lived essentially her life mirrors Sana, Sana Amina. She said she's based on me. Uh, she's you know lived just like I did, which on the on the one hand sounds a little bit narcissistic uh, that 
and it's kind of like a self insert, like a lot of uh, people who write fan fiction would write. Um, the, the, the original story of the Mary Sue is based on the same idea. However, it's actually not even true because um, you did a great video. It's actually my favorite one so far where you went into uh, not the history in terms of like when the worm really turned at Marvel Comics more recently with um, the hiring of Sana Aminat and also a little bit into Sana Aminat's background, which I thought was really interesting as well. So I thought maybe we can like... Um, you know, talk a little bit about that because I think the people here should should would be really interested in, in knowing this info. Uh, I agree. It is very interesting. I, I don't mean to malign anybody or to try to get them attacked in any way, but I think people really ought to know what is being presented to them and who is presenting it to them. And certainly, when those people presenting these things to the things to them are being hypocritical. And I would say San Amanante is one of the most hypocritical people that is um, working in comics because, well, her brother was, when she was in high school, he was a multimillionaire. I think he sold one of his software programs for a couple of hundred million dollars and her family was very prestigious. And he has since then uh, been found out to be what they call and have written about him in the paper. They called him a serial swindler. But at the same time he was doing that, he was putting forth ideas that his family had always put forth and were trying to get these ideas, I don't know, into storytelling. He was influential in making a lot of the movies that a lot of us have probably seen movies like red and twilight and a lot of others that i can't think of off the top of my head but there's a number of them and he had commissioned people i think at harvard and even other places to do research into how to insert these ideas into stories and i do believe i'm going to do some more research into this in the near future but i do believe that san amanat herself is simply using those research materials that she has from her brother really as the basis of what she is doing of how to insert ideas into stories rather than to have them as stories themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also um, she's actually got connections that go as high. And again, don't, you know, don't go after her. None of that's going to be helpful. I think you guys know that we just like to discuss uh, these connections, but she does have connections to, uh, the Clinton administration, as well as Obama, or at the very least, she has like they have um, uh, friends in common, right? Yes. Well, one of her close cousins who has been revealed because I went through trials. Sam, let's see. I'm sorry. They went through uh, transcripts of the trial for her brother, and um, he has now been convicted of fraud and a number of other cases and her another one of her brothers and i do believe someone else in her family is now up on trial for other cases of fraud but um her close cousin was the top person at the clinton administration or at the very least the top person who was an aide for hillary clinton i can't remember her name off the top of my head i wish i could um, uh, it's like ab abudin i do I believe think. uh abudin i think yeah yes yeah, I don't remember her last name, but our first but, name. Um, 
No, neither do I. But she was uh, one of the top people in the Clinton administration. Um, she certainly held a number of positions within the Clinton Foundation and um, underneath Hillary Clinton's staff. And I do believe this is how San Amanat was granted access to President Obama while he was in office because she met with him twice, although they were public meetings. Certainly, when someone has access to a sitting U.S. president, you got to scratch your head and wonder, why in the world does this person who writes comic books have access to a president? Uh, and mm -hmm. really, when you look at the story behind it, you understand that these are connections that go back far into her family because she, in a sense, grew up with this woman who was so close to Hillary Clinton. Um, her parents brought over a number of people into their household and they, they lived together as far as um, has been told in interviews. And so Yes, this this goes very high up on the food chain of what people are trying to get you to think and um, where they want you to take that thought process. This certainly is not something that I think happened randomly or at chance. I, I think that these companies, media companies in general, not just comic companies, but media com companies in general are looking to promote ideology and a progressive ideology specifically above storytelling. And they want to hide that to some extent. I mean, San Amanat herself has come out and said as much when she has given interviews with people. But I found it really funny that um, it's when she's talking in an open forum that she admits these things, not when she's talking as a representation, as, as a representative of Marvel, as someone yeah. who is supposed to be towing the line. Yes, yes. Oh, and the woman's name. Thank you, Zerangs. He he says Huma Abedin. Huma Abedin. Here's a picture of her. Um, so you guys know. And yes, she is related to Sana Aminat. So uh, it's in, I think it's important. It's an important piece of trivia that uh, does does raise an eyebrow. You know. So um, uh, okay. So. The um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost track of what we were talking about because I had to answer that question. I apologize. Uh, and then you'd like disconnected for a second. But um, what were we uh, just discussing for that? Well, I was discussing how she is trying to insert ideas into characters. Well, right, 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 right. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, oh, and the, the thing I was going to bring up, now I remember. Uh, number one, if you want to know what she really thinks, you can um, see the listen to the Women of Marvel podcast. Um, I actually do listen to it. It doesn't seem to be, uh, despite the fact that it is um, using the massive platform of Marvel Comics and Disney, uh, it doesn't actually get a ton of traffic. Just like the Marvel YouTube channel, if you look at the Marvel YouTube channel, they have um, videos that get tons and tons of traffic, which are usually movie trailers uh, and and stuff that promotes their uh, television shows. But the stuff that's about the podcast or about uh, the kind of um, goofy things that they do, like Marvel Make Me a Hero, or they have these uh, episodes about um, making food. Uh, that's related to superhero stuff. Those don't do very well at all. And that includes the uh, Women of Marvel podcast. But 
um, if you listen to it and she's on and also the people that she's on with, like her, her co-hosts, and they all sound the same. So it's difficult to know who's who uh, you actually get. You can get some interesting insights into uh, how they view the world of comics, how they view writing uh, stories, telling stories and also where their priorities are, which I do want to also touch on. But um, I wanted to mention this to the audience as well. I think one of the the funny things about listening to that podcast is that people who are of this progressive mindset are so used to segregating themselves and wanting to segregate others that they really believe that no one will listen to what they have to say in these forms unless they are of the same progressive mindset. They have this idea that, you know, I'm not going to listen to anybody on the other side. Why would someone on the other side ever come over here and specifically listen to this? But if yes. you actually go and listen to it, you certainly get to understand that these people are not creating entertainment, certainly not entertainment for anybody's benefit. What they are trying to do is to sell you ideas. Yes, they're educating. And that's actually the thing I wanted to get to. Uh, what I've noticed is that while the comics themselves are failing financially and it doesn't look good, uh, Sana Aminat and um, the people that she works with, the, the progressives at Marvel, they don't care. They actually don't consider the fact that the books don't sell to be a failure because what they want is for the ideas uh, to impact the culture in other ways. And that's actually what matters. And and I'll I'll give you an idea of this and then you let me know if 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 uh, if you've noticed this. I assume that you have uh, if you want to add anything. The. Um, the thing that I've noticed is, is that they've had a focus on bringing the ideas of their sort of progressive Marvel and their progressive stories into the education system, into public schools. So they have, um, you know, uh, uh, talked about. Uh, having plays about Squirrel Girl and about Ms. Marvel. And these plays can be are done in high schools and they're done in elementary schools. They have um, uh, tried uh, essentially made uh, uh, products that are specifically meant to be distributed in schools. And so they're trying to get to uh, they're trying to change their audience and they're moving away from the people who've always been buying the books, which is another reason. Again, uh, Samana uh, Amanat herself has been quoted as in saying, uh, I've heard over and over again that women don't feel comfortable at conventions or in comic book shops she says. And so, and there's this, this, this narrative that's been going around uh, for people that, that are all trying to ch trying to change media in other places that the, where they've always been sold, where the, the kind of culture comes together to enjoy their hobbies or their, their products is no longer the place that is, is considered welcoming. It's considered, um, you know, to be an unwelcome place specifically for women and minorities to a lesser extent. And uh, she's just trying to bring this into education. So all of this other stuff, they're, they're pushing the comics, they're pushing plays, they're pushing uh, these other things that are not related to the the main sort of bread and butter of uh, their industry. Uh, oh, and also the films as well, because now that they've made uh, billions of dollars on the films and the television shows, they can just put that in there. Sorry, that was like a super chat. It's a subscription. Thank you, Yoav Crane. Okay, so um, what do you think about that? 
Well, I think you're dead on because I covered a podcast that she did. Well, it was actually a panel. I think it was the 2018 San Francisco Comic-Con. They did a Women of Marvel panel there. And someone asked the question whether or not one of their progressive heroes was going to get another chance. They were talking about America Chavez. And this Mm. is a very, very progressive hero. And the book had just been canceled. And they were saying, what are they going to do now that this book has been canceled? And San Amanat quite specifically said that just because the book was canceled doesn't mean they don't consider it a success. Mm. Now, I went over that in my podcast because really what she's saying is even though the book failed to find an audience and failed to generate any money, they still considered it a success. She made the uh, comparison to Avengers. She said they still consider it as successful as something like Avengers. And why? Because it got out there. And so they got their message out there through this book. And in another podcast, she explained that the reason why these things are considered successful by them and why people can't look at numbers, she specifically said that, they can't look at just things like sales or how much money they're making because those things are not what it's really about. What it's about is trying to get these ideas into the hands of, as they're always saying, children, because she had said that it may have not been successful in the comic shops, but once it's gotten into a book and you have libraries and library associations and parent associations that want to buy this book, then it may be successful. And that's what she was counting on. And she specifically said in that uh, podcast itself that these people, they buy these books, not upon the book or the story itself, but upon the description of the book that is given to them in a pamphlet, basically like the scholastic pamphlet that goes around to your kids in, um, in grade school. But these library associations and, and parent associations, she is banking on them reading this very aggressive description of a book in whatever pamphlet they get. And they're going to say, yes, I want that for my kids. I want that for this library because it advances this progressive agenda that they themselves, usually as educators and as librarians, because a lot of people who are educators and librarians have this slant to their mindset, Mm -hmm. they will say, yes, we need that. We need this in the classroom. And this is not something that is only for Marvel either. There's a book that recently came out, which is Superman Smashes the Klan. And the guy who wrote it, um, well, he was actually rewriting an old radio play of Superman from the late 1940s. But one of the things that he does is that he tries to get these books into schools. And I would say that the main gist of this buddy who opposes immigration in any way is to be seen as a member of the Ku Klux Klan, as a Nazi. And this is his ideology. This is what he's trying to do. And He goes onto his Twitter and talks about how these books should be in the hands of every school child. Mm -hmm. And this is what it's about. They're always, always talking about how these books are for kids, not because they want these books to do well, and certainly not because they want to promote a heroic ideal, but because they want to train the next generation of people in this progressive ideology. Yes. uh, So if if they're trying to push a, it looks to me like they're fine with comic book shops shutting down and uh, they don't really have an interest in preserving them unless of course those comic book shops uh, totally toe the line on their 
progressivism, which a lot of comic book shops do, uh, you know, agree with them politically or would if they had everything laid out, but they wouldn't be able to stop the books from not selling because they don't really um, they're, they're just hoping to to stay in business. But with that happening, if comic book shops are not important, if Sana Aminat herself and not just her, because I've seen this again, like you said, not just with Marvel, but not even just within comics themselves. I saw a discussion on a podcast um featuring a bunch of uh dungeons and dragons guys like um mike merles and uh, matt mercer who runs a uh a live kind of podcast thing called a critical role he's a well-known voice actor um and they were on there saying that uh you know shops where people go to buy these kind of board games and tabletop games are also unwelcome spaces and you know uh, that that should change or if they close down that it's fine uh because again the that that subculture the gamer subculture should be more inclusive and these guys were supposed to be and they self they 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 sort of name themselves the um uh the let's say the leaders uh, the cultural leaders of this hobby and that this is a uh, th- where they use their kind of uh, self-perceived authority to say this is what we should be doing um, in in the larger culture. So it's not limited to comics. It's everywhere. I'm just using, using it as another example. And so if that's happening, uh, well, we can just focus on comics as an example, where then would uh, people like Sana Aminat want people to go to get like to get their comics um do is it just what like go to school we're just going to send it there or do they want people to just go to the website like what what are they hoping to accomplish by getting a bunch of comic shops closed in terms of sales honestly i don't know the answer to that question i think they were trying to push digital for a long time but it has bottomed out on them um they want it to change from print media into something that is completely digital and that simply didn't work they are constantly trying to promote new things within their their connection with scholastic Mm -hmm. and their connection with libraries and with schools but at the same time when you look at how these things sell and how they're being received, they're not being received in any way that's having really any impact on the bottom line of their sales. They are simply being at some points just given away because, well, that's what they do um, for a lot of their progressive comics. They basically give them away because they overship them to comic shops. If you sometimes will say like um, there was a, a book came out last year, which was Iceman. They mm-hmm. deliberately overshipped it by twice as much as you would order so that, you know, it would get out there. This progressive story would get out there. And you had people who are running comic shops. They don't have to pay for the extra comics themselves, but they have to pay for the extra shipping. But the whole point was that they're making this idea out there. They're trying to get the idea out there that these are having an impact. Mm-hmm. I really, honestly, to answer that question, I would say that what they're trying to do is to make it look like these ideas are having an impact because mm-hmm. Part of the progressive ideology is to make people who have a different kind of uh, ideology, not even an ideology, a different kind of mindset. Anyone who has even a conservative mindset, they try to make them, and they specifically say this in their playbooks, you know, how to deal with conservatives, is you make them feel isolated and alone. And that's the end game. It's not to sell comics 
because you know Disney can can absorb all of these losses, and Marvel to some extent can ex- absorb these losses. But the thing is that what they're trying to do is to get their ideas out there to make people who disagree with them feel isolated and alone, yeah. that they shouldn't have these ideas, and to bolster the people who do have these ideas. Yeah. Uh, again, I covered uh, another, I think it was a interview with uh, G. Willow Wilson, who was one of the co-creators of Kamala Khan, uh, Miss Marvel. And she talked about in an interview with, I think it was the New York Times, talking about the fact that they're trying to, with their books, what she wants to do, what she saw as happening with the comic industry and what she wanted to do after Donald Trump specifically got elected was that she wanted to provide a stronghold for these progressive leaders to retreat to, and she could give them hope, this hope fuel that she talks about, so that when it comes time again for them to go out and attack, then they're all ready to go. And that's what they want to provide with these comics and these media, uh, whether it be D&D, whether it be television or uh, movies or comic books or anything. They're trying to circle the wagons and they're trying to provide a stronghold, as G. Willow Wilson said, so that these progressive leaders can lick their wounds and attack again when the time is right. Yeah. It's always top down too. They, they, there's always this uh, argument from authority. This is the reason why I brought up uh, Matt Mercer, Mike Merles uh, in the D and D thing. But it's also in gaming, uh, where the journalists tell the uh, consumers what they should be getting, as though it's coming from this place of authority. I think it's the reason why uh, you know Sana Aminat um, was uh, introduced Barack Obama. It's always this top down thing where you know they say, well, we have the most powerful, the most influential, the most um, uh, charismatic, the most famous people agreeing with us, and so that means that we're right. And and you know it's it does it it does uh help to make people feel isolated um when they think that you know because uh people who are not uh, sort of progressively minded tend to uh, question themselves and they might say well am i wrong about this because here are extremely powerful famous uh you know people agreeing with the progressives and making a statement and coming out, you know, and and saying a few words in support of their ideas. So maybe I'm I am the one that's wrong. I don't want to be. I don't want to lose my friends, etc. So I think that's what I've observed. Uh, I agree with that. Certainly, this is why they are so active on social media because I have said this a number of times on my channel that they're trying to use social media and other forms like social media as a shaming mechanism. That's what they're trying to do. And you see it all the time, certainly with comic pros. And they tell customers specifically to go away if they have a conservative mindset, if they're even questioning and saying, well, I see what you're trying to do and I'm a liberal and I'm progressive, but what about the story? And when someone even brings up that small little idea that they should be focusing on the story, they get blocked Mm -hmm. And they get told to go away, that they're not supposed to be their customers anymore. So this is what is going on. They're trying to shame people. But unfortunately for them, they they don't quite understand the fact that people who really don't share their ideological mindset are much more resilient when it comes to something like shame. 
because they're so used to a progressive mindset where you point the finger at other people. The problem is always someone else. It's always mm -hmm. someone else. And that's why shame works for them so much. But for someone with a conservative mindset, they say, well, no, look, I'm looking inwardly. If I'm going to point the finger at somebody for what has gone wrong in my life, I'm going to point it at myself first. And so your shaming has no impact on me because I've already had this self-reflection for myself. And I understand that this is not what is going on. But again, I think they are siloed. They have put themselves into an echo chamber and they firmly believe that they can use these platforms to shame people and goad them into believing their progressive mindset. And it's simply not going to work. And they're really finding this out now, um, especially what's, with what's going on um, with American politics. And they're not, they're not making as big an impact as they want to be. They look like they are, but when it comes down to the ballot box, they're simply not because a lot of people are just fed up with what they're hearing and yeah. they're confident enough in themselves to actually believe what they themselves have figured out for their own life rather than have someone tell them what to do. Yeah, it's actually interesting you said that you you mentioned uh, that they use shaming to get people to comply. And um, I remember you you talked about this in a couple of your videos where uh, progressives want to create a or they they act on the assumption that we live in and they probably also want to create and expand a shame culture, a culture of shame where the mob can get you to do you know, uh, whatever out of, out of, uh, um, I guess out of fear of reprisal or out of uh, fear of retaliation from them. Um, whereas we've, uh, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, normal people, um, they live in a guilt culture, right? Does that make sense? I, I don't want to misrepresent what you were saying. No, that's what I was saying. A lot of people don't quite get into, I don't know, the specific of it. I've gotten a lot of pushback from saying those things, but what I'm basing it on is actual, um, actually actual scholarly work, which I ran across a long time ago in my study of classics. And it talks about ancient cultures as being guilt cultures instead of shame cultures. And when you had Christianity come along, it introduced a guilt culture instead of a shame culture uh, and what the difference between those cultures are and who you have to please in those cultures uh, in the difference where your shame culture, you have to please society because society is the one who judges you. But if you're going according to a Christian mindset, you know, God's the one who judges you. So really you got to think about your relationship between him and you. You don't have to think about, first of all, your relationship between you and society. But I think that, they are trying to reinstitute this ancient idea of shame culture and to get people to think first and foremost about how is what I'm doing going to impact how I look in society? You know, am I going to have to save face? Am I going to have to censor myself in what I say because it is going to cause me shame because we have all these other people who are going to shame me and that does make an impact on what I'm going to say and how I think. And again, um, I think that they are trying to reinstitute this. And social media is one of the big tools that they are using because it is a social site and they're trying to use these social sites to um, institute, again, a shame culture. Mm. But uh, this is something that has been going on for quite some time. Yeah, really interesting. 
yeah, I was talking a little bit about social media yesterday, and um, and we're we've been going for about an hour. I should wrap it up soonish, but I want to. I got to get this off my chest. Um, yesterday, I listened to a a talk that Jonathan Haidt was uh, in. I couldn't tell you exactly where it is, but you can look up Jonathan Haidt. It's it was relatively recent, and he was explaining um, how boys and girls uh, differ in terms of uh, the way that they aggress. Now, uh, this is something that I'm sure the people that are watching know the answer to this question because we've talked about gender a lot on this channel since it is sort of like the mainstay of what we discuss. Um, when when boys are aggressive. They tend to be physical, and that's how you get bullying and fights and that kind of thing. When girls are aggressive, it tends to be social. It tends to be relational. Um, when when we introduced uh, technology, social media, video games, that kind of thing, boys that wanted to be physically aggressive uh, without uh, consequences could go play a video game. They can go play some competitive game online, uh, Fortnite or, or Call of Duty or something, and kill people online, and no one is really hurt by it, and they actually get that out of their system, that that uh, energy. It actually, uh, psychologically, it, it affects them in, the, in a similar way, except that there's no consequences, and they also don't have that, um, you know, where you get into a fight with someone and, and you might walk away and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I wish I had done this or I wish I had done this another way. Instead, you're thinking about how you could improve and, and sharpen your skill as a gamer online. Well, girls, they tend to uh, uh, enact their relational aggression on social media and for them social media is a kind of game a kind of competitive game except that the consequences are are real like they actually because because girls can be affected by social media and most of the you know there have been studies that say that women experience more uh bullying um online as opposed to men uh that's not true most of um most of uh, men actually experience more bullying online however they are less likely to complain um and most of the bullying that women experience online is actually uh by other women if they're in their uh if they're like teenagers or even in their 20s and a lot of it is about uh, social isol isolation. It's about exclusion um, and even ways that th that uh, they don't expect. For example, if you're a girl and you go on Instagram and you think Instagram is a place where fights don't happen, um, but it's just people sharing pictures of their food and their pets and their travels and, you know, their makeup and so on. But even that actually has negative effects on girls because they see uh, they get the FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. Or uh, this sort of um, insecurity that comes over them when they see that their girlfriends are, or just classmates and peers are sharing pictures of themselves um, looking, you know, really pretty or with lots of filters and stuff. And they're getting a lot of attention that these girls aren't getting. And what I guess is interesting about it is it goes back to uh, uh, the thing I was originally saying about social media being a shame culture. Um the, the thing that's interesting about it is, is that uh, for for girls, social media is like a game. Uh, they actually treat it as such. And it, there's there's um, I don't know. It's just it was just interesting. I just saw the overlap there, if that makes any sense. So. No, I see the overlap as well. I did a video on that exact thing. 
I talked about the gamification of social media and how mm-hmm. you get points when you get likes and you get extra points when you get shares. And this is what social media has become for a lot of people. It has become a social game. But the thing is that it's a social game that is being directed into something very specific. And again, um, we can just look at some of the things that are going on with social media and the investigations into social media and know that social media is leaning towards a very progressive mindset. Mm -hmm. So if you want to win that game, if you want to do good in that game, you automatically have to have this progressive mindset because if you don't, then your stuff is not going to get shared. Your, Your stuff is going to get hidden and you're never going to obtain really any points in that system. So I agree. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, so we should be getting to the end here. Um, is there a specific video that you have made that you are really proud of and why? Honestly, there is not. <laughs> I don't know why. Whenever I do my videos, I say to myself, I really should have done better. I don't think this is good enough to put out on the internet. I really don't. And then just like my last video, I really didn't want to put it out there because I thought to myself, this isn't something that is finished, but then it gets 10,000 views. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, what did I say there? I I really don't understand. Uh, Quite honestly, I just talk. I just let people know what I'm thinking. Um, I look at something, I look at a situation and um, I give it some clarity, hopefully, but honestly, um, if you go to my channel, I'm sorry, but they are very low quality videos and that's the way they're going to stay because I'm mainly talking about ideas. I want to focus on ideas and ideas that, that center around heroism. And as long as people get some kind of introduction or clarification on this idea of hero and we can have a discussion about it, I really don't care about how well I do or I'm not really proud about what I myself accomplished. I'm just trying to help the conversation along quite on. Yeah, no, I think the videos are great. It, it's, it's fine that there's not a lot going on visually. Cause I usually listen while I uh, take the dog for a walk uh, or while I'm doing something else. So I'm not looking at the screen anyway. Um, but I think that those, cause I, I'm a, as a comic book artist myself and a, and a, uh, a person who's hoping to create uh, comics and I, and I want to break into comics cause it's the lowest, like the lowest financial bar for entry. And I'm like super poor. Um, but I care about archetypes and the hero's journey and these kinds of stories that resonate with people on a level that uh, mainstream entertainment in general is just missing the mark on overall. And so I'm like, well, there's clearly, uh, you know, a, a desire for this content. And it's clear that the people that we sort of like, you know, look to to make it aren't doing it and they either don't get it or they specifically, you know, uh, don't want to and they're just pushing against the grain. So uh, these videos are very useful. Um, I also recommend for those of you guys who are watching, if you if, if definitely check out rj's channel it's uh the fourth age i put the link in the low bar i like the videos and also and this is not to distract from rj's but there are other guys that make sort of comic skate adjacent content um but not just about comics they talk about symbolism and storytelling and stuff and um and on how old it gets like the like how old these stories are um and why they're really really important and so I would also recommend looking at uh, David Stewart, 
Professor Geek, who I've been trying to get on the show for a while, and Jonathan Pajot, who I've actually had on the show. Um, and I'm at, he's actually going to be in Chicago tomorrow. I'm going to go meet him. Uh, he's going to be busy. He's, he's here today and tomorrow. But um, so one other thing. Have you faced any opposition for your content? And if so, what kind? Well, the only opposition that I've really faced for my content is when I was active on social media. And it was only for a short time because I was new to social media and I wanted to put my content out there. And I was trying to build a subscriber base. And I certainly got someone who, well, most people who are comics gate adjacent would know um, SJW Spider-Man. And he tried to dox me. And so, you know, I got pushed back like that. But besides that, really... I get ignored by a lot of people and I don't mind that so much no. because the people who do come to my channel, uh, they understand what it's about and uh, I'm growing steadily by the day and there are more and more people out there and I want to just connect these people and let them know that yes, there are people out there who really want a traditional idea of a hero. They want that in their character and you're not alone. If you are looking for something that is a traditional Western hero, there are plenty of people out there that want that too. You're not someone who is, as the progressives try to paint you, someone who should be isolated and alone in a corner. There are plenty of us out there and we all wish to get back to what actually works and good stories, really, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, okay, so I have one super chat from Brown Gaijin. He gave us, he gives us five dollars. Thank you, Brown Gaijin. And he says, "What books do you recommend reading?" I also heard that you've written books too. I think this is directed at you because I haven't written anything. So, well, if he's talking about comic books and he's talking about current comic books, what do I recommend reading right now? I would say read uh, Freedom Fighters, which is a DC comic, and also Batman. Curse of the White Knight, that's also a DC comic. A lot of these comics are Elseworld comics, basically. Uh, uh, so get into the main continuity, but they're there that are really good. A Silver Surfer Bravo, if you can go back and get a couple of the, of the uh, older issues of it. I have indeed written a book, but I have not published it as of yet. Uh, I've written a novel, and it's actually quite old. Uh, I finished it probably about five years ago now, and I tried to get it published, and Quite honestly, I really learned how progressive the um, industry is, not just for comics, but for novels as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I just gave up on the idea of getting it published, but uh, getting online and seeing what other people are doing, I now want to self-publish it. And even if it doesn't make me a whole lot of money, uh, I just want to get it out there. I don't know when I will. I've already had it edited a number of times. Uh, I just need a final edit done on it before I can put it out um, as a self-published book. But I don't know when that will be because I have a very hectic schedule, especially trying to make videos. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping to do so. Mm -hmm. I heard the new Conan uh, comic is good too. Is it? No, I'm a Conan <laughs> fan, and it started okay. off really good. Uh -huh. It started off really good, but then it went downhill very fast. Oh, um, that's a shame. There are a couple of Conan-adjacent stories that aren't too bad, like Savage Avengers, which is a Conan comic. Um, but right now, uh, even I, who am a very staunch Conan fan, I'm buying these Conan titles more upon inertia and upon the fact that I really just want to see if it gets better. Some of them are just horrible. Uh, Conan is portrayed as 
effeminate almost. And uh, you have all of these women warriors about him who are the ones who protect him. So no, I, I wouldn't recommend that. That's all something right. you run out and buy. All right. Uh, never mind about that. I'm sorry. Conan got woke guys. Um, or it might. I mean, we'll, we'll, I'm sure if it picks up, you'll, you'll uh, share that information. Uh, okay. So then I guess I got one last question. Um, I know that this is what you like to talk about, but do you think that the larger conversation that's going on with the much more influential, much larger sort of cultural channels that discuss things like Comicsgate, but not maybe not limited to it, uh, should they be taking into account these kinds of, you know, archetypal uh, historical ideas that you discuss on your channel? Would you like to see the conversation shift in that way? I honestly think the only way to move forward is to go back to these old ideas. I think a lot of people are of the mistaken idea that if we go back to something like the 80s and the 90s and bring it back to that kind of progressivism, that we will save ourselves. But I don't believe that's the that's the way it's going to go at all. I think that the progressivism in the 80s and in the 90s led to where we are today and inevitably leads to where we are today. So we need to rediscover these old ideas. We need to rediscover our history. We, we need to rediscover the origins of Western civilization and look at things like the traditional idea of a hero if we wish to move forward in any way. Yes, I agree 100%. I think that if you just go back to the 80s and 90s, it's sort of like pushing sludge uphill. Um, it's just going to come rolling back down again. And you're, and you're, uh, you're inviting that unless people remember why the stories worked, what, what Jack Kirby what had set out to do when he designed Galactus and the Silver Surfer had nothing to do with him trying to talk about like the, the Jewish condition. He was basically saying what I, I remember specifically an interview, uh, Jack Kirby said about Galactus. He said, I wanted to know what God looked like. And so this is what I made. And then he said, what would his angel look like? And that was the Silver Surfer. And Galactus and the Silver Surfer are representations of Jack Kirby's exploration of the idea, what does God look like? I think that's a really, that is not something small. That is significant. That is enormous. Um, Okay, I have another super chat from Tyler Preston who gives us $5 and he says, you mentioned SJW Spider-Man trying, uh, tried doxing you, so you might be familiar with Renfamous 2. Are you? No, I, I really try to keep my social media limited right now. Um, uh, I don't, while I listen to everybody who leaves any kind of comment on my channel, and I, I read the comments there uh, quite religiously so that I hear what everybody has to say, um, I'm one of those people who, if your name is not sitting there right in front of me, I really, it just falls out of my head. I'm much more of a visual learner. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I grew up on comic books. And really, uh, some people say, well, why aren't you answering me? And I never realized that they're the same person, because unless you have a really stunning visual that is attached to your name, I just don't get it that you're the same person. So um, <laughs> I could have have had contact with this person. But honestly, um, if the contact is not in any way, shape or form constructive, then Really, they just fall out of my my vision. All right. 
Well, uh, thank you for the super chat, Tyler Preston. Also, thank you, Brown Gaijin, for the super chat. And I think we're done. I want to, uh, is there anything that you wanted to say that I didn't ask? Or uh, do you have any questions for me? Uh, no, I really, I think we covered a lot of ground here, but I just, I guess I wanted to say that if you want to come over to my channel and listen to what I have to say, um, it is about traditional heroes. It's about your traditional idea, your Western civilization idea of hero that's been around for at least 3,000 years. And it's something that speaks to the human condition and something that's fundamental within your human nature. And that's what heroes should be. And that's what I tried to center my discussions around and my whole channel around. So if you want to come over to my channel, that's what I discuss. And hopefully it will appeal to you and more and more people as I continue to grow. All right. Yeah, I definitely suggest you guys check it out. I think there is something um, in inherently um, masculine about that discussion. And that's just my opinion. So you can uh, see for yourself. Uh, and uh, yeah, I want to thank you, RJ, for taking time to come on and, and allowing me to be the first person to interview you live on the Internet. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. All right. And I want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode of the Fireside Chat. Uh, please hit the like button. Be sure to subscribe. Make sure you're still subscribed and hit the bell for notifications and leave us a comment. Uh, let us know what you guys think about this discussion. Add to the conversation. I always read the comments. Thank you so much for coming on this episode of the Fireside Chat. And I'll talk to you guys in the next one. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.